Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. It's, it's amazing to be able to be back uh, together uh, as, as we come together uh, as a church on a Sunday. And, and as we were coming back together, I, I was really thinking about why. Right? Like, why do, we, why do we gather together? Other than the fact that it's amazing to see our friends, that it's, it's incredible to worship together, that we sound much better together in a group, at least my personal experience, than I do singing by myself in the lounge, right? It's much better when your voices are drowning out my voice. We sound collectively, yeah, there's a marked improvement. But, but I was also thinking about this, this, this statement of why are we here? Right? And, and I was reflecting on this question, as I was reflecting on it, a, a statement came to mind that I want the city to celebrate that we're back. You know, I, I love that across lockdown, we didn't stop being the church. That throughout lockdown, we were, we were doing things to bless our city. I don't know if you know, but we took up over $1,000 to contribute towards 0800 Hungry to help them put together food parcels to help people who were struggling to, to feed their households over lockdown. We, we partnered with uh, World Vision to support the, the church and the people in Afghanistan as there's a, a humanitarian crisis there. Again, we gave almost $1,000 as a church towards that. We did, we did more grounded local things like for Father's Day, we nominated father figures in our lives throughout the city and this country. And we dropped off a little care package there with some socks and, and some jerky and some chocolate. Anyone get one of those and enjoy it? Yeah. A little bit delayed in the post. It was all right that it was like two weeks after Father's Day, though, I reckon, because A, New Zealand Post apologized on the delay of the socks, and B, it meant you had a father's fortnight, which I think should be a new thing. I think we should stretch Father's Day out. I don't know if a day is enough to appreciate the incredible father figures in our life. Father's fortnight. We'll start a different campaign for Mother's Day. Maybe we'll do like a Mother's Month. That'll be, you know, like, do I have any mothers agreeing that that's a good idea? No dishes for a month. No, you're not keen? Fine, there you go, there's opportunity, that's, that's fine, that's fine, it was offered. Let it be known when Emma asks that I offered to do the dishes for an entire month, but the church didn't want to, so uh, there we go. <laughs> I love that we invited friends and family into our homes, that, that we, we reminded ourselves and embraced the fact that church is not a place or a time, but it's a people, and that we are the church. And I love that we get together together again now, we get to be the church collectively together. And so now as we're back, I, I was wondering, man, how do we continue to love our city? How do we continue to bless our city? How do we continue? How can we operate in such a way that the city will celebrate that we're back? In fact, if you're taking notes today, this message is titled, To Love a City. And over the next few weeks, I want to speak from the book of Jonah on what it looks like to love the city that we're in, to love Christchurch, to love Ototahi, to, to pour out God's love through us to the city and what sort of an effect it might make. And you might think, Jonah, Jonah's a weird book to preach on love from, right? Like, isn't that more, isn't the story kind of obedience to God and running from God and, and, and like a, a weird kind of fabulish analogy of, of a fish? And, and I've been trying to find the big fish, but I haven't. I mean, I mean, you know, out there on New Brighton Pier every Saturday, I haven't caught it yet, but I'll keep on trying. Like, it's an odd story. How is this about love? I, I want you to stay with me, and I think you'll find that, that this story is much more than just the inspiration for the whale scene in Pinocchio, which is a scary scene. Don't, don't watch it with your children. We've been re-watching Disney movies over lockdown with Ollie, and some of them will get like halfway through. I'll be like, this is a bad idea, bud. Shall we watch the Lego movie instead? Yeah, Lego movie. We watched Lion King together. 
which was all right because I warned him before the scary bits, and now he walks around the house singing Hakuna Matata. So it worked out well, uh, and it is one of my favorite things in the world. But, but the story of Jonah, I, I want to start at the end, at chapter four. It's only four chapters long. Maybe even read it this week. It's, it's a compelling read. I want to start at the end, but before I do, I want to give you a brief summary of the story of Jonah. Most of you are like, Jonah, I know the story of Jonah. Even someone not in church knows the story of Jonah. But let me, let me summarize it just so we're on the same page. Jonah is a Jewish prophet told by God to go and preach in Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and all you need to know is they are not friends of the Jewish people. Now, Jonah does not want to go and speak to Nineveh, so he refuses. Instead, he gets on a boat, and he heads in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. Now, while he's on the boat, a storm whips up. The storm is so severe that the sailors on the boat are like, this is it. We are going to die. They start throwing cargo overboard to try and lighten the ship so they survive. They start drawing straws. Man, who's responsible? Jonah says, look, it's actually me. I'm responsible. I'm running from what God told me to do, and God is sending the storm as as a punishment to try and redirect me. The only way you're going to survive the storm is if you throw me overboard. So I was like, we can't do that. That's horrible. That's barbaric. God, would you forgive us? But we don't, please don't, we don't, we don't want to throw this man overboard. Jonah says, no, no, you have to. You're forgiven. You have to throw me overboard. So the sailors finally relent. They agree. They throw Jonah overboard and he's rescued by a great fish, a whale. He's swallowed by the whale. Inside the whale, he prays a prayer of repentance. He says, God, I'm sorry for running from you. I'll do what you're telling me to do. The whale spits him back up on dry land and he goes to Nineveh. He reaches Nineveh, he preaches his sermon, and the entire city repents and turns towards God, and Jonah is gutted. And this is where we pick up. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from the message translation. It says this, Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. God said, what do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. He just walked down on the conversation with God, which is a bold move considering God is everywhere. He just left. He went out to the city to the east and sat down in a sulk, put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. God arranged for a broadleaf tree to spring up. It grew over Jonah to cool him off and, and get him out of his angry sulk. Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up, but God sent a worm. By dawn of the next day, the worm had bored into the shade tree and it withered away. The sun came up and God sent a hot, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head and he started to faint. He prayed to die. I'm better off dead. Then God said to Jonah, what right do you have to be angry about the shade tree? Jonah said, plenty of right. It's made me angry enough to die. God said, what's this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get? You neither planted nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 people who don't yet know right from wrong to say nothing of all of the innocent animals. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, I thank you so much that we can come together as your people. God, we thank you for this opportunity. We, we know, having not had it for a while, how precious and special it is. 
God, I pray that as we gather together and as we make space to hear from you this morning, we thank you that you are always speaking. Help us to hear what it is you're saying, not just our ideas, not just my ideas, but, but that your word would go out, that it would land in our hearts, that it would transform us, that, that we would leave knowing that we encountered you. God, where we have blockages, where we have things getting in our way, distracting us, we just pray now that we would set them aside and, and turn our attention to you for a moment. God, we know that when we, when we lean in, you always have a word for us. I pray that we would leave having heard your voice, known your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, now you might have picked up, this book of Jonah is, I think the best word to describe it is it's subversive. What I mean by that is in it, you have a bunch of stereotyped characters who do the exact opposite of what they should do. A great example is the titular character, one of my favorite words, Jonah, right? Jonah, the, the book is named after him, and Jonah is a prophet. Now, now, prophets are known for what? Prophets are known for speaking the word of God. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets are often called the mouth of God. Thus say the mouth of God. We see it over and over again. And yet here we have a mouth who has decided to remain firmly shut. He's a prophet. His defining characteristic is that he speaks on behalf of God. And yet what is he doing? He is refusing to go and to speak. A, a, a prophet who is doing the opposite of what he should be, who hates his own God for loving his enemies. And then we have other characters like, like these sailors. These sailors are meant to represent, in every other story written in this time, they represent the worst of humanity, right? If, if you are bad enough that everyone says, yeah, no, going on a boat and not seeing your friends and family for, you know, five or, or so years, that's a good idea for you. We think that that's the right life choice. Please, leave on a boat and don't come back. Oh, it sunk. What a shame. No one likes sailors, Right, I'm sorry if, if you're a sailor here today. It's not how we currently feel about sailors, right? The, the tent has been expanded and sailors are welcoming God's family. Uh, but at this time, we did not like sailors. Sailors were pagans. Sailors were, were the repugnant ones in society. And yet these sailors, when Jonah is running away from God, when Jonah isn't wanting to hear from God, they're the ones who have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God. They're the ones who treat Jonah with grace and mercy, who have to be convinced into doing what he says. And finally, we have this king, this king of the, the Assyrian Empire and this capital of Nineveh, who, who is the villain on the global stage in this moment. He's the bad guy. And yet this king, when, when Jonah comes and preaches and brings this five-word sermon in the suburbs of the city, the king repents and tells the city to repent to the point that he has the animals in the city dressed up in burlap. He has them put on sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance and mourning in this overt, over-the-top, extreme action of repentance. The whole book is, is essentially written in the biblical equivalent of satire. It's meant to make you think about an approach to the world, the approach that Jonah has. And the book, it ends with a question, with God asking Jonah a question, why can't I love the city? But before Jonah can, can answer, the book finishes. It's like, has anyone ever watched one of those movies and it finishes just a scene too early? You know what I mean? Like maybe it's, maybe it's the, the, the man is, is finally going up to the lady's door and he knocks on the door and you're waiting to see, man, is she going to open the door or not? Maybe it's someone in the hospital bed and, and they've done all they can and they've administered the life-saving serum and, and you're waiting for them to sit up or, or it's, you know, the, the, the person, it looks like maybe they've been shot, but maybe they haven't and, and, and you're just about to find out what has happened and it fades to black and you're waiting for it to fade back. 
and it doesn't, and it stays black. And, and then there's that moment, right, where you see the first part of the credits start to roll up. I don't know about you. I, I like, yell at the TV. I'm like, no, you haven't completed the story. There's no resolve for me here. I'm, I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I'm going to be wondering the entire time, right? Like, did, did she open the door? Did the serum work? Did they get shot? How do, it's, it's the same thing in the story. It's like, Jonah, can I love this city? And just before we get to hear Jonah answer, the book finishes. Because the question isn't actually for Jonah. The question is for us. Are we okay with the fact that God loves everyone, including our enemies, including those that we don't like? Are we, incl- are we all right with the fact that God's mercy, that God's grace is available to everyone who would repent and follow him, who would lay down the other gods in their life and accept his sacrifice on their behalf? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the reality of what God's love is? See, the book of, of Jonah is meant to be a mirror, a mirror to the one who reads it. Because I think there's potential in all of us to, to behave like Jonah when we are called to do the opposite. I think everyone in this room, I, w- I would do a show of hands, but that might be a little bit too cringy. I don't want to get into the, you know, whenever you talk about love in church, it starts feeling like you're speed dating everyone else in the room, and I'm not going for that vibe today, right? We're trying to keep socially distanced. Speed dating is, is kind of the opposite of that. But, but I, I think all of us in the room know what I mean when I, when I talk about loving someone. Maybe it's a partner or a parent, a friend or a pet, but, but expressing that love to someone else other than yourself in the world. And the way that I would define love is, is, is I think you know it's real love when it costs you something and you still love them. You know, I, I think I've shared this story before, but it's, it's kind of my favorite story to, to share about Em and I's relationship because I see it as kind of like the, the relational turning point where we went from kind of casually dating to being like, all right, this is going to be something a little bit more. It's that moment. Have you ever thought about who would play you in a movie? It's quite a narcissistic thing to think about. But um, anyway, this is one of the key scenes in the movie of my life. Uh, and by the way, James McAvoy would play me uh, because I'm actually James McAvoy, if you've ever. Anyway, that's not at all important. This moment in the story of our love story, we are at McDonald's. As all love stories, you know, they have to have McDonald's somewhere in the story. Uh, and we've, we've ordered some food. I think we're going to go see a movie after the McDonald's. We've ordered some food. We go and sit down at our table. I take a napkin and I put it on the, the lovely plastic plates that they provide. You might call them a tray. I choose to be charitable and call it a plate, right? And so I put this napkin down on my plate and I've taken my fries and I've emptied them delicately onto the napkin. And then I reach, and I take Emma's fries, and I empty them delicately onto the napkin. And Emma looks at the fries. She looks at me. She looks at the fries. She looks at me. She says, what have you done? I say, well, we're on a date. We're sharing our fries. No, they, they, came, in, they came in two Two packets, they were pre-packaged for us. You had your fries, and, and I had my fries, and, and you can eat your fries, and, and I, I, I can eat my fries. Why would, you, why would you mix the fries like this? It's just, I thought, you know, it'd be nice to, to share. She's like, no, but you might eat more fries than is your fair share of, of the fries. You're, I have a small, you've got a bigger mouth. Jono, everyone knows you've got a very big mouth. You're going to eat all of the fries. This is not fair. Like, we're relaxed. I just thought, you know, I grew up in a loving 
sharing household, like an Acts 2 biblical, generous sort of household. We just, we shared everything that we had. I thought this was a lovely thing to do. Now, Em did not grow up, not in a lovely biblical household, of course, but, but a larger household. She's got five siblings, and, and, and so you would not mix your fries growing up. If, if poor little Emma mixed her fries growing up, poor little Emma would not eat any fries because her siblings would eat them all before she got a chance. And so she's looking at me, and she has this moment, this, this opportunity to make a decision. Is this too much? Now, sitting across from her is, is an intelligent, handsome, humble, humble man. But he, he's mixed the fries. And, and so she has to decide, man, is this a cost that I am willing to count? Will I leave now? Will I cut my losses and, and, and leave? Or will I count the cost of him having some weird habits? And realistically, she, she stayed, you know, spoiler. Uh, and, and, and actually, she counted the cost in many, much bigger ways than, than sharing the fries, right? But, but I think you really know what it is to love someone when it costs you and you still love them. Would we agree? You know, I, I've heard it said that you like someone because of who they are, but you love someone in spite of who they are, right? But because no one is perfect, and those things that you like about them, they don't go away. The good things are still there, but the more that you get to know someone, the more that not just the idealized version that you created in your mind of them exists, but you start to get a little bit closer and see, actually, maybe this person is not perfect all the time. Maybe like me, they, they have some things in which they're a little bit rough around the edges. They're a little bit broken. Some things don't always go the way that I would like them to go. And love is seeing all of that person and choosing to love all of them. Not, not just because of the good things, but in spite of the harder things. Love is when it's not just an idealized version of someone, but when we know of all of who someone is and we love all of who they are because love is counting the cost. See, I, I want to ask us today, where are we willing to let love cost us in our lives? Across the next few weeks, I want you to, to hold this idea front of mind. Love is just tender emotions until it costs you something. Let me say that again. Love is just tender emotions until it costs you something. If there is no cost involved, I would challenge to say that it is not love. It, it is all we are doing is receiving and not giving. This is not a relationship. It is a service. And real relationship cannot exist simply in this getting and not giving place. Real love will cost. And so today I want to look at the story of Jonah and I want to pull out two points about how we can better love those around us, about how we can love our city, about how we can behave in such a way that the city will celebrate that we're gathering together. And to do so, I've got two points for you today, and they are both the names of famous love songs, or what I consider to be famous love songs. So point number one, if you're taking notes, is I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Does anyone know the song? Yeah, we know it. Can we get a rousing chorus? Ready? Three, two, one. Anything for love. That's beautiful, guys. Yeah, okay, that's enough. That's enough. That was, love's counting the cost, and, and that cost me a little bit to hear. It was, um, no, I'm just joking. You sounded beautiful. It's meatloaf, for those wondering. Uh, and yes, I did spend more time than I probably should have finding the exact same font that meatloaf uses on his album cover for that point on my slides. But it brings me profound joy, so it's a worthwhile investment. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. See, Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because it cost him more than he was willing to pay. 
And on a first reading, we can think that Jonah fled to Tarshish because he was afraid of going to Nineveh. Because he thought, man, if I go to Nineveh, this is a murderous, violent city. They are not going to receive me well. I will come to harm if I go to Nineveh. And so he ran out of fear. But, but we know that that's not actually the case. See, Jonah in, in chapter 4, he gets mad at God and he says, I knew this was going to happen. He's referring to the fact that they repented. God, I knew that they were going to repent. I knew that when they repented, you, you, would, you would forgive them. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. God, I knew that you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. God, I knew it. See, he wasn't running in fear of them not repenting. He was running because he knew that if they did repent, God was good enough to forgive them, and he didn't want God to forgive Nineveh. Now, why? Why does Jonah not want God to forgive Nineveh? Well, if we go to the next slide, in, in 750 BC, 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, verse 25 tells us about this King Jeroboam II, who's the king of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. This is after the divide. You've got Israel and Judah. Jeroboam II, his, his father Jeroboam I, is actually the first king of the, the north, is, is the king of Israel at the time. And Jeroboam II is known for, for, for establishing a military campaign in Israel. Basically, what he starts to do is he starts to expand the, the nation of Israel by invading surrounding countries. He, he begins to, to conquer other people and, and build up Israel's borders. And at the same time, Jeroboam II is doing this. He's also leading the people into idolatry, into, into worshiping false gods. And, and Jonah is around at this time. Jonah lives under the reign of Jeroboam II in the nation of, of Israel in the northern kingdom. But he doesn't prophesy against Jeroboam II. Amos does that later on a different prophet. In fact, Jonah is, is actually friends with Jeroboam II. If we read here in, in this passage in 2 Kings, down the bottom, it, it says that Jeroboam II essentially went to war according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah. The prophet Jonah says to Jeroboam II, you should attack other countries and make Israel great again. You need to uh, expand the boundaries of our kingdom. You need to go on this military campaign. And so as Jeroboam did it, Jonah found that he was becoming more and more powerful. See, see Jonah was politically invested in the military success of Israel. And Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is fairly new on the scene, and, and they're basically the, the new potential big dog in, in global politics. They're starting to rise to a position of global power, and they're going to be a, a real problem for, for the nation of Israel. And so Jonah's sincere hope, we can assume, is that God would destroy, would send his judgment on the city of Nineveh and on the people of Assyria, because then there would be no one opposing the nation of Israel, who he is invested in the military success of. So when God says to Jonah, I want you to go and preach to Nineveh that they might repent, Jonah is like, God, that is literally the last thing that I want to do. Jonah doesn't flee because he's afraid of the people of Nineveh. Jonah flees because he cannot handle the idea that God would forgive them. That's why he says in, in chapter 4, verse 3, so God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead because if his greatest enemy turned to God and he found his identity in nationalism and, and Israel's military might, then who was he? If his whole worth was in the fact that they were superior, that Nineveh was bad and that they were good, then who did he become? See, God called Jonah to love his neighbor. 
in the truest reading of that parable, the, the, the people of Nineveh were like the, the Jews and the Samaritans in, in this time, right? They were the enemy of the people. And he said no because it cost him too much. He ran because it was, it was too much for him to think that God might forgive these people. And I think for most of us, naturally, we get this idea. I think for most of us, love is a balance of what and who. See, I'll find it easy to get up in the middle of the night and settle Ollie or Harriet. I'll find it easy to go in and, and give them a drink of water and, and rub their back, pat their bum, right? Just sit there for a little bit until the wee hours of the morning. But if any one of you, as much as I appreciate and love all of you, if you ring me at 1 a.m., say, John, I'm really struggling to sleep, right? You might get a prayer out of me. Oh, man, that sucks. I'm really sorry to hear that. I probably wouldn't answer my phone because it would be on do not disturb sitting next. But let's say you got me. Maybe, a pr- but if you're like, oh, John, I appreciate the prayer. I think what I really need, I need you to come over. I, need you, I just need you to rub my back. Maybe, I just need to, I just need to can you heat up a hot water bottle for me? Maybe some, some warm milk. Can you read me a beer dumb story? I'd be like, look. No. <laughs> Ring Penny. Right, because I think love is, is a balance of what and who. Some things, there are are costs that we are willing to pay depending on the person. I will do extreme things for my children because of my natural love for them. I'll I'll do easier things for other people because of my natural love for them. But when it comes to the point where God asks me to do something more than I am naturally willing to do for someone who I am not naturally willing to love in that way, it asks me to pay a cost in some sort of way. It's easier to love those close to us. It's easier to love those close to us, not because it doesn't cost, but because we can justify the cost. Love is hard when we can't justify the cost. See, my second point today, and I'm done just as the band comes up, point number two is love is a verb. It's a DC Talk song for anyone wondering about the font. Uh, If you don't know who DC Talk is, you need to go and look them up after the service, and I can assure you, you will be blessed the other end of the spectrum from meatloaf. We've, we've struck a balance. See, now, now I, I don't know about you, but when I st- read the story of Jonah, I can relate. Right? If, if I'm honest, I find it much easier to love those close to me, and it's harder to count the cost for others. I'm more inclined to be grumpy and, and selfish and miss the point than I am to be unquestioningly self-sacrificial, which is why I'm encouraged by Jonah. Because here we have Jonah, and he finally arrives at Nineveh, this, this gigantic city. If we go to the next slide, and he, he walks a day in. It takes three days to get across the city. Right? He walks a day into the city, into the suburbs of the city, and he gives this message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be smashed. It's five words in the Hebrew. It's the worst sermon ever preached. Right now, I'm no expert at preaching sermons, but I think probably a sermon should at least have, in this case, if he's calling them to repent, maybe a mention of what they've done wrong. Maybe a mention of what they can do to correct the thing that they've done wrong. Maybe, I'm I'm just spitballing here again, but maybe in a sermon, you should potentially mention God just suggesting, like I don't want to tell Jonah how to, how to do his job, but, but if you're bringing a sermon to a foreign people, maybe you should tell them what they've done wrong, what they can do right, and the fact that God is bringing this message to them. But no, he just comes in, doesn't mention who's doing the smashing, why they're doing the smashing, just says when they're going to do the smashing and the fact that they will be smashed. It's like a playground insult battle. And then he leaves. He leaves the city, goes and sits outside the city on a hill and waits, hoping that the city will be destroyed. I guess he's planning on camping there for 40 days and just waiting. And, and, and so he's sitting outside the, the city, and, and he doesn't know what's happening inside the city. 
And, and this is the reason that I'm encouraged is because I think he starts to see from his position on the hill that the city is starting to change, that something is happening, that, that people are pouring out of the city in, in sackcloth, that people are repenting, that people are seeking after God. And he's like, no, God, if they do this, then I know that you are merciful enough that you will forgive them. This is not, I tried to preach the worst sermon I possibly could. See, the reason I'm encouraged is Jonah delivers the worst sermon and the king steps off of his throne. If we go to the next slide, he takes off his robe, dresses in burlap, and sits down in the dirt. He declares, Nineveh must seek God. Because here's the thing. As we come back as a church, as, as we reopen, it's not about the quality of our love. It's about the quality of the love of God that flows through us. Now, we should never try and be Jonah, right? We want to be better than Jonah, ideally. But even if we were a thousand times better than Jonah, I want to suggest that we could never love so well that the king would step off of his throne, take off his royal robes, put on a sack, sit in the dirt, and decree that none of them must seek God. See, that sort of a response, it's ridiculous. That sort of a response from a murderous king of a murderous empire, the villain on the global stage, it's miraculous. That's the type of response that only God's love can bring about. See, I think we need to remember that in the light of history, when we read this story, there was another man who was on a hill outside of a city. While, while Jonah stood outside the city to condemn it, hoping to see it destroyed, Jesus was dragged outside of the city and chose to hang on a cross to die for it. While Jonah sat outside of the city and said, why would you not destroy the city? They deserve it. Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. See, every time we come together, we want to make sure that Jesus is magnified, that we point towards Him. And so this morning, I want to point to Him in two simple ways. The first way is, friend, if you are here today and you do not know that Jesus came and died for you, you do not know that you are loved, you do not know that He paid the highest price for you before you could do anything to earn it and that you could never earn it, that He loves you not because of who you are, not because of what you've done. He loves you with a true love, seeing your imperfections and loving all of who you are coming for you when we could never earn it. Friend, today, if you would respond to his sacrifice and say, I accept what you've done for me, the Bible tells us if we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that we are saved. So his head's about, his eyes are closed. If you're here today, and I've been speaking about this, this Jonah who came to the city and declared that, that there is a love, that there is a hope in the worst possible way, and yet God still moved. Today, I wanna try and do a little bit better than Jonah. I let you know that God loves you, that God is for you, that if like Nineveh, we would repent, turn from the things that we have made God and embrace the only one who truly can be, that our lives can change. So his heads are bowed, his eyes are closed. If you're here today and saying, John, I know that today is the day I need to make this decision. I need to become right with God. I need to embrace him as my Lord and Savior. Right now, as it's just you and God, so I'm looking around just to see who's gonna raise a hand. Would you raise your hand up nice and high and say, Jono, today I'm making this decision, be it as first time or as a recommitment. When you raise your hand up nice and high and let me know. Awesome. Just give it a few more moments if that's you. Why don't you raise your hand up nice and high? So good, church. Awesome. Church, can you repeat this prayer after me? Jesus, today I turn to you, realizing I need you. I fall short but you came for me, you died for me, and today I accept your sacrifice. I turn from my own ways, my own gods. I leave them to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.
the second thing I want to point us towards in Jesus today, and then we're going to go out to the song of praise, is not only is Jesus the one who we meet in salvation, but Jesus is the one that we meet in cause and destiny and call. See, all of us are called, are made. The purpose you were put on this earth for was to bring something of heaven to earth, to express God's goodness in creation that others might come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they might know that they too are valued, that they too are, are, are worth so much more than they realize. The hard thing is, is on our own, it is very difficult to make a compelling case. We are broken people. Our loving actions fall short. Sometimes we even compromise our own message. But the joy, the hope, is that we can learn from Jonah that it's not our love that transforms the world, it's our willingness. See, love is a verb, and so today, church, I wanna ask you, what will be your action? What will be the thing that you will do to love those around you? Don't worry about it being big and, and exceptional. Jonah's action was ridiculously lacking, but God moved through it. But do something. It's an old adage we say in church all the time. It's harder to steer a parked car. Simply start moving, and as we move, we believe that God will start to direct our steps. See, I wonder what does it look like for you in this season of life, in the second half of this year, to embrace living in a loving way, to embrace the reality that, that it, we will not be like Jonah, we will not be like Meatloaf, that, that it will not be, I would do anything for love, but not that, but that we would go where God calls us to go, do what God calls us to do, that love would be a verb that we embrace. You know, I know for many of us in last lockdown, there was a moment when we came out where life felt different and we embraced a season of rest. And I believe that that is a good thing. But I wanna say, I feel like God's saying as we come out of this lockdown, what does it look like to come out not focused on what we went through, but looking to others? I'm not, I'm not advocating that we're dangerous or burn ourselves out or, or harm ourselves in any way, but having an internal focus is not good for us in the long term. What would it look like to come out and say, last lockdown, I put some things down and I rested. This lockdown, I'm picking things, some things up and I'm relying. I'm embracing God and I'm embracing call. In what way can we live a life that's others focused? Maybe it's starting to serve. Maybe it's opening your home or joining an e-group. Maybe it's reaching out to someone that you hope to see today and you haven't seen yet and you're checking in. Hey, I miss you. Are you okay? Maybe it's sharing something of your faith, your journey, your testimony with a loved one, a workmate. Maybe it's just doing something good for nothing. Just a loving act for someone who maybe would never even know that you did it. As you embrace fast food again, maybe it's paying for the meal of the order in the drive-thru behind you. I don't know what it is, but, but would we be intentional about doing something loving, about establishing a loving practice in our life, that this city would celebrate that we're back, that we would love this city well. Church, would you bow your heads? I want to pray, and then we're going to go out with a song. God, we thank you that you call us, and you supply our need. God, that we are, we are not asked to, to transform the world in our own strength or our own ability or capacity, but that we are simply called to be willing and available that as we step out and do what you're calling us to do, as we step out and bring love to those around us, as we step out and create an opportunity for you to shine, that you shine brighter than we could ever imagine. God, I pray that we would be a people who are bold, a people who step out on the next step that you've called us to, and that's different for each and every one of us, but that as we step up, we would build a story of testimony that you would come through again and again and again, that we would look back a year from now at the incredible things that you have done through our willing availability. God, I thank you that we are not saviors, but we can point to you. And our lives with the cross get bigger 
would your love be more profound? Pray your blessing over us, your enabling presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. 